the song that we're talking through this morning is called uh, Come Thou Long Expected Jesus. It's the one that we just sang. Uh, it was written on uh, nearly, it's creeping up on 300 years old. This is, these are old songs that have been sung and celebrated primarily in Western culture. Uh, this one today that we're talking through originated uh, by Charles Wesley in England and then eventually made its way across the pond to the United States. And, uh, and, and, and so it, it's rich. But what, before we get into the song, I just want to speak briefly uh, again on Advent. Advent is about expectation. It comes from a Latin word, adventus, um, and adventus means coming or arrival. And so Advent is really a point in the, in the calendar year when the church uniquely focuses herself to consider the two Advents, not just one, two. There's a double nature of Advent here. Jesus' birth his coming as he was born of a woman, born of a virgin. He took on flesh and became a man. But also, post-resurrection and ascension, we look forward to Jesus' second advent. So advent really has a double nature to it. How many in the room, just by show of hands, um, grew up in either a family or a church tradition where you celebrated or observed advent? How many is this, how many for you is this not a foreign concept? Okay, just a, a handful in the room. I too, um, for those of you who didn't put up your hand, I did not grow up in a church tradition that celebrated or observed Advent. So um, I really just started to get into it and, and understand what it was about five years ago. I'm 42 now. So pretty late in life, having grown up in the church, I discovered what Advent was all about. One thing that I find really encouraging about Advent, and not just about Advent, but also about the way that we structure our liturgy, on a Sunday morning. A liturgy is another way to say our service order, our order of worship on a Sunday morning, is that it's connected. So Advent and even the way that we worship outside of the Christmas Advent season is uh, anchored and tethered to the ancient church. So in the morning, like this morning, Trevor read a, an invitation to worship. There was an opportunity for all of us to just let this invitation enter our ears and enter our thinking space and kind of like do some work on us. And then we were invited to a call to worship, which was this time of call and response where the words of scripture were in your mouths. And we together as a church were being called to worship the Lord. And then we enter into a time of singing and um, typically even a time of confession and assurance where the host will come back up and, and guide us in a short, um, just kind of thought-provoking, kind of mini um, contemplation around uh, what it, the weakness that we have before the Lord, the sin that we um, have uh, participated in are complicit in before the Lord, but not just our confession of sin, also this assurance of peace, this assurance of pardon. And so we contemplate that together as a church, and then we'll sing another song in response, and then um, a teacher will come up and exposit God's word, and so we'll hear from Revelation, we'll hear from God's word, um, what God says to his people, and then we'll have a time of response to that where we respond in communion, where we observe the sacrament of communion. And then after that, there is is a benediction. And so that liturgical order, that service order, has been being practiced by the church since at least the second century. What that means is that we're not just making stuff up here. 
were connected to the saints of history, observing our Savior, worshiping according to many of the forms that were handed down to them from generations previous. The first record that we have of the Advent season of Advent being observed by the church is in 380 A.D., So Advent began to be observed, practiced, celebrated uh, in 380 AD. There was this council uh, called the Council of Sargassa. Sargassa is a town in northern Spain, so that's why it's called, that's where all of these kind of church uh, leaders, these bishops of the early church, they, they met in Sargassa, and they were getting together to, uh, to confront, to figure out how to address this Gnostic heresy. You don't need to remember all this, but it was called Priscillianism. And Priscillianism basically held that the physical world was completely evil. And so we needed to rid ourselves of the flesh, this, the seats you're sitting in, the building, all of this is junk. We just need to get past that because the, the only thing, the true thing that matters is uh, the spiritual world. So they held essentially that we're trapped in evil bodies and we should long for the day when the physical is no more. But... The incarnation of Jesus has something really particular to say about that. Because the second member of the Trinity, the Son of God, chose purposefully to take on flesh, to be born of a woman, and to live, to set up his tent, to incarnate literally with his people. And not only that, but at his death, He rose from the grave three days later. He rose in a physical body. And as he's appearing over 40 days to his disciples, they're disbelieving this as you or I would because it's crazy to think of a person rising from the dead. He would say, touch the wounds in my hands. Touch the wound in my side. See that I am enfleshed. And he was at one point hungry, and he asks his disciples for a piece of fish. So at his resurrection, his resurrection body was a physical flesh body, and he promised his followers that we would share in the same physical bodies at our resurrection as well. And even when he ascended, after appearing to over 500 people, um, he ascended to rule and to reign over all creation as an enfleshed, embodied man. So Jesus Christ right now rules as king, as a physical, enfleshed man. That's what the Bible teaches, plain and simple. Anyways, the the, the season of Advent, uh, it, it comes onto the scene actually just after Christmas was placed on the church's calendar. So the, the, the early church has been observing Easter since the very beginning, since the first year, since, the, since the, the initial resurrection of Jesus. They've been observing Easter, and that's the big holy day on the church calendar. And that's in the springtime. It's likely that Jesus was actually physically born in the spring as well, but it wouldn't make sense to, to have two massive holy days in, at, in, in the springtime. And so they're thinking about how to place, they, they, they want to observe his birth. Um, and and uh, so his resurrection in the spring, and th- we need a time to observe his birth. And they're thinking, and what better time to observe the light of the world than the darkest period of the calendar year, the winter solstice. 
And that's how Christmas actually came to be placed around December 25th, is because it was very close to solstice. Solstice, I think, is the 21st. It's either the 21st or the 22nd. So right now, this time in northern Idaho, in the northern hemisphere, we are, uh, we are like eight days out from this solstice. And you know how dark it gets, how early it gets. It's a bummer, Right? What better way for us to remember the advent of light coming into the world than at the darkest time of the year? Because the, dull, the, the, the dark, cold days of winter, they produce a longing in us, don't they, for the light and heat of summer. The darkness of winter, the cold of winter, it produces a longing in us for the heat and the light of summer. And in the same way, the dark and the cold and the confusing ways of our culture They produce a longing in us for the light and the heat and the assuring presence of our Lord and King who will make all of the sad things come untrue. This morning we're looking at Come Thou Long Expected Jesus, this hymn that we just sang. Uh, It was written by a man named Charles Wesley in 1744. So this song is creeping on 300 years old right now. Trevor gave us a really good historical picture of who Charles Wesley was. He was this prolific hymn writer. He wrote something like between uh, estimates are between 6,000 at a minimum and 9,000 hymns in his lifetime. He has an incredible impact on Protestant history, particularly in England and in the United States. And the inspiration behind this song, Come Thou Long Expected Jesus, it seems to be the squalid, troubling conditions that he observed among the orphans and the class divides in England where he was living. At this time, he's an open-air preacher. Uh, that's, there, there's not really a lot of his history to be known about, but what we do know during this time when he wrote this song, 1744, is that he was an open-air preacher. And so he is among all of the people. He's seeing and he's smelling and he's encountering uh, the conditions that common, everyday, ordinary people uh, were living within. And so this overwhelming poverty in England, it deeply troubled Wesley. I've been to Haiti uh, three times. And if you've been to a country where there is pretty overwhelming, uh, where there's overwhelming poverty and you kind of get behind, you, you get outside of the tourist centers or the city centers and you start to get uh, blocks out into actual neighborhoods, you know that the kind of poverty that you, that you encounter in those situations, it will take your words away. That kind of poverty will just steal your words. It'll make you go silent. And at other times, that kind of poverty will give you words. It'll give you new ways to express things through new experiences that you've had. And I think that's what happened with Wesley. It gave him new words. It gave him actually a a new song. And so in light of all that Wesley was seeing and feeling, tradition says that he considered this single verse from an Old Testament Testament minor prophet, a guy named Haggai, 
uh, in your, at the, near the end of your Old Testament, Haggai 2.7, where, where it'll be up on the screen here. He wrote this from the Lord. This is what the Lord is saying regarding Israel. This is at the time when Jerusalem was destroyed and the temple was still destroyed. And, and the Lord says, I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in. And I will fill this house, he was speaking of his temple, with glory, says the Lord of hosts. And so as Wesley read this verse, I can, I can understand how he's looking at the Lord aiming at shaking the wealth of the nations out and, and giving it to Jerusalem and to the people who are trying to rebuild the temple here. I can see how Wesley would say, would you just do that for us in England? As he's looking at this poverty, he's aiming and he's longing, Wesley is, for uh, suffering to end and the hope of Jesus's gracious kingdom to be realized. And so what Wesley did was he took a published prayer. This is in the public domain. Uh, It was penned by someone else. And he wrote uh, the first verse of this song, and then he took that public, that public prayer verbatim, and he made that the last portion that we sing of Come Thou Long, Expre- uh, long Expected Jesus. So the, the entire last verse, Wesley didn't write. Um, that is a public prayer that was meant to be prayed in church services. And so here is what Come Thou Long Expected Jesus does. Here's what the song is meant to do. It's meant to capture the double nature of Advent. The double nature of Advent. Advent means arrival. The double nature means that we are looking to Jesus' coming, a born of a virgin, born, uh, uh, born, born perfect, born God, coming into the world and fleshed, but we're also praying for his return. So his return, his second coming is his second Advent. And this song really captures the first advent and the second advent. It's got 91 words total in it. So it's pretty, I mean, it's punchy. It's short. There's not a lot here, but you'll know, like, just because there's not a lot of words doesn't mean there's not a lot of content. There's a definite flow to it. Stanza one recalls these messianic prophecies uh, in Israel from far before when Jesus was born. These prophets in Israel have been speaking of a coming Messiah. And so Wesley is kind of calling on that. He's calling that out. And then stanza two, uh, it speaks of Jesus's birth and kingdom and contains a prayer for Jesus to rule our hearts. So we'll get right into the song. Uh, The title, Come Thou Long Expected Jesus, it summarizes the song. Come thou long expected Jesus. It is a song of longing. This is a song of hope. Uh, It's a song of yearning. To long for something is to yearn for it. Uh, The young, the, the expectant parents are longing to meet the child in the womb, right? The motivated student is longing for his education his school career to end so that he can begin his actual career, right? An avid hunter longs for fall, longs for the experience of camp, longs for the thrill of the chase. A mark of genuine Christians is that we long to meet Jesus face to face. That is a mark of followers of Jesus who are living in an open-hearted way toward him, 
a mark is that we long to meet him face to face. And so come thou long expected Jesus, it's a good reminder as a song of why we long for him to come again. Like the content of this song reminds us why it is that we should position our hearts to long and to yearn for him to come because what he promises, what he represents, what he objectively does in his people is unlike any other person or possession can do for you. He is altogether different. He is omnipotent, which means he is, uh, is all-powerful. Not only that, but he's omnipresent, which means that Jesus, ruling as an enfleshed man through his spirit in the world, is everywhere at all times, working with all of his people at any given moment. He's omnipresent. But here's a new one for you. He's omnibenevolent. You heard this word before? I had to go looking for a word that explained he's all good all of the time. He's omnibenevolent. He is good. To be benevolent means to be gracious in nature and just good to the people that are around you. He's good all of the time. So no one and nothing in all of existence is this comprehensively out for your good. As Jesus of Nazareth, no one and nothing matches him. He's matchless. Philosophical systems, ethical systems fall short. Money and possessions fall short of fulfilling you truly. Keeping the law, being a good person falls short for you. People always fail us, the best of them. Vacations, they don't really ever provide the actual rest that we need, do they? Rarely. That's why we say we need a vacation from the vacation, right? But Jesus is altogether different. He's the person who never falters. He's the husband who never fails his bride. His teaching and his way is the philosophical and ethical system that actually best explains the world and how to live within it. Jesus Christ heals He delivers us from sin. He delivers us from our fears. He delivers us from anxiety. He promises to deliver us and has proved it by his resurrection, even from death. He brings joy to his people. And our hearts find contentment in Jesus Christ through even the most desperate circumstances when our hearts are anchored to him. The world around us can fall apart The people around us can fall apart. And yet when our hearts are anchored to him, there's still hope to be had and contentment to be found in him. His authority is beyond any entity or being in the universe. And his spirit, the Holy Spirit in us, assures us of his promises to us his guarantee of what's to come. And that's what this line in this song taps on near the end. By thine own eternal spirit, rule in all our hearts alone. It's totally appropriate that Jesus' people would long for him to come. That we would be a people of longing. Is that longing present in you? Is longing to meet Jesus face to face Is it present in you? Is that something that you express out of your mouth? I grew up uh, in church in the 80s and 90s, and uh, and, uh, 
we're not really like focused on eschatology a lot as a church, the study of the, the last times, but I, I, it was like a really, really, really big deal in the tradition that I uh, grew up in. And I remember people uh, regularly like just saying, come Lord Jesus, come, come Lord Jesus, come, come Lord Jesus, come. And to me, my interpretation of it was it felt, it, it felt like it was more motivated by fear uh, than anything else than by a true longing. And so I kind of judged that in my limited wisdom as a teenager, come on. Like, but, but, uh, but I, I'm recognizing that like that expressed longing in me as I'm looking at this song, as I'm considering like, do I long? Does that, do those kinds of words even come out of my, my mouth? I'm recognizing that in many ways, like they don't, like I don't find myself longing for him to come. At least I'm not expressing it. <clears throat> and I think many of us even, um, we find this weird like juxtaposition between really loving the life that we're living and not wanting that all to shift. And so if you could just kind of like, if you could just wait a little bit, let's continue, you know, things are good for you right now. If you're in more desperate circumstances, the longing for him to come probably feels a little closer to you. But I just want to ask the question again, do you, do you, do you long to meet him face to face? Some of the, the last chapter uh, of our Bibles in Revelation, chapter 22 says, come, Lord Jesus, come. There's a yearning in the Apostle John as he writes that for Jesus to come. There have only been about three years in human history uh, where God's people to some degree haven't been longing for Christ's coming. And those were the three years of Jesus's public ministry where some of his disciples and some of the crowds begin to murmur and begin to think and begin to consider that, man, this guy really is Messiah. Now, the story of God's people is one of constant longing. The wheels fall off the bus in the third chapter of your Bible. And humanity and God is promising his people that he will return for them, that he will restore them. If you will return to me, he's constantly calling they know that their world of their making is a disaster, and so they long. Many Jews today still long for the Messiah's first coming because they don't believe that Jesus fulfilled the Old Testament prophecies. And the church has longed for Jesus' return ever since his resurrection and ascension. And so as we participate in Advent, uh, we're joined to the longing of the historical ancient church. Human longing is accurately summarized by any phrase that begins with I wish. Think about it. That's not the only phrase, but any phrase that begins with I wish I should clue you in to longing. You're longing. I wish Christmas would get here, right, kids? Like, I want Christmas to get here. I want the gifts to come. I want it to, like, I want Christmas to come. If I could just find a house. This market is crazy constantly getting squeezed out on my offers or my applications. I wish I could retire, but I can't. I wish things could be like they used to be. <clears throat> what are you wishing for in this season? Just where do you find your heart wishing in this season? If you were to finish that sentence, I wish, what would be in front of you? What are you wishing for? <clears throat> Come thou long expected Jesus, born to set thy people free. From our fears and sins, release us. Let us find our rest in thee. Most days, our wishes are too small. Most days, the focus of our wishes are too small. They're not unimportant. That's not what I'm saying. 
but I am saying that they're too small, maybe in part because our God is too small. The God in our view is too small. You sincerely doubt his ability and his willingness to come through for you in the way that you need him. You sense that you need him to come through for you. A man named J.B. Phillips is right. He said this, you can throw the whole weight of your anxieties upon Jesus because you are his personal concern. You can throw the whole weight of what it is that you're anxious about on him. You don't have to hold back any of it. You don't have to temper it. You're not going to overpower him with your needs, with your anxieties. They are not going to overwhelm him. When every single person in this room and every single person on this planet come at him at one time with every one of our anxieties, he is not even in the red line category. He is able fully because all power and dominion and glory and honor belong to him. He is fully able to carry your anxieties. You, the person in your seat, are his personal concern. He sees you. Some of you just need to hear that this morning. Jesus Christ enthroned at the right hand of the Father, sees you and intercedes for you. For you. The reason that Jesus took on flesh in the first place was to bring his people into freedom. And so there's two, there's two lines in this song that, that, that emphasize this. Born to set thy people free and born thy people to deliver. This comes from Jesus' own words in Luke chapter 4, uh, verses 17 through 21. Um, he's teaching in the synagogue. That can happen for any member of the synagogue. They can just kind of come up and, and give a word. And the scroll of this prophet Isaiah uh, was written about 700 years before this moment when Jesus is about to unroll it. Um, the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to Jesus and he unrolled it and he found this place where it was written, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. Jesus says, but Isaiah has written through the Lord, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and he gave it back to the attendant there at the synagogue and he sat down. And think about this moment. And all eyes, all of the eyes in the synagogue were fixed on him. They're waiting for him to say something waiting for him to exposit it, to expound on it. And this is what he says. Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. (gasps) Jesus is saying that he is the one upon whom the spirit of the Lord rests, who has come to bring liberty to the captives. He was born to free and deliver his people from our sins. And in the line of the song, also our fears. Sin is what separates God and man. The unholy has no right to presence with the holy. And so for Jesus to come and deliver us from our sin... It's purposeless if he doesn't have a purpose. Why deliver us from our sin unless he means to deliver us to something else? 
He's delivering us from our sin. That means that he came to deliver us to God. The Apostle Paul will write this and that he has transferred us from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of his beloved son. It's through Jesus Christ that we have peace with God and we stand firm-footed by faith in the lane of God's grace. You can find that in Romans chapter 5, verse 1. It's by, faith, it's by, it's by a him, through Jesus Christ, that we have peace with God. Now, not all who come to Jesus and who claim him will be claimed by him. This is a word of warning to us. Some of us in this room, some outside will use Jesus for their own purposes, period. And on the day uh, when they come face to face with him, will be turned away because they were all about what Jesus could give them and they wanted nothing to do with him. They were all about his benefits and they could have cared less about the benefactor. That's usury. It's a rare person among us who will tolerate being used by another human being. How much more a holy God who is altogether righteous and all wise will he tolerate being used by mere men and women? It's a word of warning for us. Fools look for ultimate rest outside of a loving and interactive relationship with God. True followers of Jesus are, are, are marked by something very distinct. Uh, this will be up on the screen here. Hearts that find ultimate rest in him and long for his presence. That's a mark of a true follower of Jesus. Hearts that long for him and find rest in him. Augustine, this early uh, church father, Northern Africa, he's the man on this line of thinking. And he, there's this famous quote that I've quoted a bunch and you've probably heard or seen before. And it says, you have made us for yourself, O Lord. And our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. You've made us for yourself. And therefore, if we're not finding our rest in you, we're looking out here for our rest, but we've been made for you. Our hearts are just going to continue to be filled with anxiousness and striving and dissatisfaction until they're actually aimed at that which they were made for, which is relationship with God. A heart at rest in the Lord is a heart that's content in the Lord. Um, Here's some marks of a heart that is content in Christ. A heart that is not complaining, but that is thankful to the Lord. Discontent is always betrayed by complaint, by grumbling. Contentment is always betrayed by complaining. It's just Take inventory. Like, is, is there a, a, a real sense of grumbling just, in, just internally in you? I think there's, there's opportunity from the Holy Spirit for you to, to walk that toward him in uh, repentance. A heart that is resting in Christ is quick to inquire of him and is quick to remember him. A heart that's contented in him is quick to remember him. And so as opportunities present themselves, a contented heart in Christ is quick to just come to him and to thank him for opportunities or to consult him about the opportunities. When things go off the rails in your life, you're quick to consult him or, or, or even just in the moment when you recognize that you haven't been, like you're, you're, you're running uh, toward him. A heart that is resting in Christ is not beset 
by circumstances, taken totally out by uh, circumstances. But a heart that is at rest in Christ, that is content in Christ, can worship in the midst of deep pain. When things go off the rails, when a phone call comes, a diagnosis comes, when your relationships are in complete disarray and turmoil, there's still opportunity for your heart. Where else is it going to find contentment if it can't find contentment in him? Moms, you got these little people under your feet always pawing at you and pulling on your clothes and sticking fingers under locked doors just to let you know they're there as if you have forgot, right? It may not look peaceful, but he can piece together a content heart in you. Israel's strength and consolation, hope of all the earth thou art or you are. Dear desire of every nation, joy of every longing heart. Remember, come thou long expected Jesus. It's a song of longing. This section, it captures the double nature of Advent. Uh, I'll, be re- I'll be brief here, but Wesley is tapping on something really profound in these uh, four lines. Um, <clears throat> Jesus is Israel. So he's, he's aiming, notice the flow here. Uh, Israel, earth, nations, individuals. This is like a comprehensive view of who Jesus is interacting with. He's Israel's strength and consolation. To console someone is to bring, um, is to comfort a person who's in deep sorrow or trouble. Um, he is uh, Israel's consolation, and, and he, he has been eternally present with them as the second member of the Trinity. And so as history has gone off the rails with Israel over time, uh, he is at the Father's right hand. He and the Spirit and the Father rule over all things. And so as Israel has been in turmoil, Jesus Christ has been a a member of this Godhead comforting Israel, but also Israel's strength, the one who restores Israel and gives her strength. He came first to the house of Israel. He was sent out of his own mouth to the lost sheep of Israel. He's the Messiah that they look to for their strength and the Messiah also that they look to for comfort, for rescue. And not only that, but he's the hope of all the earth. Jesus is the hope of all creation. In our New Testaments, the Apostle Paul in Romans 8, he talks about how the creation longs, it groans for redemption, meaning that the physical world that we live within in some way that we, quite, we can't quite see or sense is like groaning, as in Paul's words, the pangs of childbirth. Like creation wants restoration. So Jesus is the hope of Israel. He's the hope of the physical world. He's also, and according to Wesley here, dear desire of every nation. He's the way and he's the truth and he's the life, not only for Jews, but also for the nations. Jesus is the president that we need. And he's not only the president that we need, but he's the leader that communist nations and socialist nations and monarchies need as well. He's the head of state. See, in elections or in um, however a, a leader of state is brought to power, 
power, the people in these nations are regularly looking to the promises of the person who is either vying for the seat or will assume the seat. The people are looking to that person to bring them prosperity, to bring them safety, to bring them security. And this line in this song captures that he's the desire of every nation, meaning he is the ultimate head of state that everyone on the planet needs. The government shall be upon his shoulders. It's a prophecy that Isaiah wrote about Jesus. He's the president we need. Our commissioning from him is to reach the nations in his name for his fame. And the end of this age, it's already been seen. It's already been recorded in the last book of your Bible, the book of Revelation in chapter 7, verse 9. The apostle John, he writes this, after this, so this is at the end of the age, after this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number. This is a sea of people. No one could number. Where were they from? From every nation, from all tribes, all peoples and languages, standing before the throne of God and before the Lamb of God, who is Jesus Christ, clothed in white robes, signaling that they have been purified by him with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne. That is going to resound. A a, a mass of people are going to shout that. Those of us who set up early in the mornings or have done these exercises where we just shout Jesus is Lord at the top of our lungs is like our our briefest, uh, most concise statement of faith. You know how powerful that moment is with just 15 people in the room. But what about 5 billion? That is going to be a cry of worship that we give to him and our hearts are going to be engaged. That is not a boring moment. That's a, that's a moment that just, that, that makes you rejoice internally. And he's not only the hope of Israel the hope of creation and the desire of all the nations, but he's also the desire of every longing heart. So he came for the Jews, he came for creation, he came for the nations, but he also comes for every individual. What is outside the scope of his care? Name something. You can't. Not if you're looking at the Jesus of the scriptures. Not if you're seeing the real Jesus come to life off the page of your Bible. Born to deliver Born thy people to deliver, born a child and yet a king, born to reign in us forever, now thy gracious kingdom bring. Uh, Spurgeon, this famous uh, preacher in the 1800s in London, he said Jesus was born a king without being a prince. He was just instantly out of the womb a king. At less than eight days old, we learned in Angels We Have Heard on High, the song from two weeks ago, that shepherds came to worship him out of the fields as the angels had announced his birth to them before Jesus was eight days old. These guys were on the doorstep worshiping this newborn Christ. People bowed and worshiped him while he was a newborn. And he was born to reign in us forever, Wesley says. Stop for a moment and think about what this means for your life. He's born in us to reign forever. or He's born to reign in us rather forever. What does that mean for your life? Forget yesterday. Forget yesteryear. Think about today. What does it mean that Jesus is born to rule or to reign in you forever? 
He was born to reign in us forever. Naturally, it includes you, but it also includes us. Wesley is getting at the scope of local churches gathered together. Jesus Christ is ruled. He's ruling in a community of people. He's ruling in individuals who come together in localized communities who are embedded and connected to other localized communities who make up this universal church. He's born to reign in his people, in his community for all time. And he's not just born to deliver us from sin, but he's born to deliver us into his kingdom of grace. He came that we might know God, that we might know eternal life. Uh, and in, his, uh, in a prayer in John chapter 17, Jesus says, and this, this is what eternal life is. This is the substance of eternal life. That they know you, he's praying to his father, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. This is eternal life, that your people know you. Not just know about you, but know you, have experience of you. We did nothing. We didn't go looking to reconnect with God. We didn't want him. Things didn't get so bad that we just clawed our way back to him. While we were yet sinners, Romans says, Christ died for us. Rome, uh, Ephesians chapter 2. While we were dead in our trespasses and indifferent to God because of our sin, he made us alive. Jesus died to atone for that very sin before we even had opportunity to recognize it or repent of it. We were ruled by our sin. And yet he came for us when we didn't want him, and he gave us something we weren't asking for, himself. There is no better illustration of grace on the planet than that. Grace is unearned, unwarranted, no wage involved, no payment plan involved. It's all gift. That's what grace is. Grace cannot be earned. It cannot be achieved. Grace can only be received. The only way to receive grace is like this. You're not slipping anything in the back, no tip in the back pocket, open hands only. The only way to receive the grace of God is with empty hands of faith. That's it. That's it. And when we do receive this gift, this is what's happening. By thine own eternal spirit, rule in all our hearts alone. By thine all-sufficient merit, raise us to thy glorious throne. Here's what's happening when we receive Christ by faith. We begin to recognize that we have his spirit. We begin to recognize that his spirit is the one who was at work in us before we even knew anything was happening. He's the one at work in us, making the preacher's words as dry as they may have been come alive and seem like they were aimed at me. The Holy Spirit is the one who brought your dead heart to new life and who created longing in you for Jesus in the first place. The Holy Spirit is the one who regenerated you and who continues to regenerate a, a wandering heart. He convicts you when and where there is sin where you're harboring things, he's the one that's causing the tension in you. 
That's not just your conscience on your own. That's the spirit of God creating tension in you, saying that is not the way, this is the way. That is not the way. This is the way. The Holy Spirit is the one who opens the Bible to you. So when you read it, you begin to understand it as complex and difficult as it is, as an ancient Eastern 2,000-year-old document. The Holy Spirit helps you remember Jesus when you forget him and when you turn to your old ways. The Holy Spirit in us is how Jesus rules through us. That's how Jesus rules through you. It's by his spirit within you. So what's happening is that we, you, grow more sensitive and aware of Jesus' voice and his ways. As we grow, we compromise less. We become, over time, more firm in our convictions that are brought to us by his word, brought to us by him. We embrace his rule in our lives more. We begin to recognize in more and more profound ways and with clear lines that it's truly impossible to serve two masters. That's the spirit at work in your heart. And the king who occupies the throne, as all of this is happening to varying degrees and all of us in the room, the king who occupies the throne is represented well by you because of his work in you. He's pleased with you. If you are in Christ, he's calling you to more. He's calling you to address sin. But he said, a bruised reed I won't break. He's gentle with you. Come to me, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy internally. Take my yoke upon you. My burden is light. I'll give you rest. Your soul is weary. I'll give you rest. I'm not going to break you. I'm not going to poke you in the chest. But he is going to urge us on. He is going to teach us. He is through his spirit going to draw us to repentance. And we're going to be glad. Because we're going to feel the weight roll off. The last 11 words of this song are our hope. By thine all-sufficient merit, Raise us to thy glorious throne. It's only by God's grace that you are saved. It's not by your works. Jesus Christ has lived for you and I. He's the, th he's the friend who gave his life for us years ago in order that we might live, that we're thankful for daily. There's not a day that goes by that we don't, for, that we don't remember that friend who, who laid down their life for us brothers in war can tell you this, that when they have had a, a brother or a sister in war give their lives to, to make sure that they live, there's not a day that goes by that they don't think of them and are thankful for that person. Jesus Christ is the one who has laid down his life for his friends, that we might have life, that we might live forever. Behold your Christ. Worship him. The dark and cold and confusing ways of our culture produce a longing in us for the light and the heat and the assuring hope of our Lord and King who will make all of the sad things come untrue. Worship him. Father, help us. Stir our hearts draw us to your son give us a vision of how good you are to us 
that can transcend uh, church traditions that have hurt us, that can transcend things that have been said to us or patterns of thinking that we're holding on to that are not healthy nor from you. Would you free us to love you? But that's not the first part. Would you free us to receive your love? be loved by you, to open our hands up to you and to recognize that you love your people deeply, tenderly, ferociously to the point of giving your own life, Father, giving your only Son, Holy Spirit working with us as the most patient being in all of existence to turn us around and turn us around, turn us around to you. We love you and we worship you in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.